The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning, Parkview. My name is Doug Fern, one of the pastors here at Parkview, and it's my joy to be able to um, spend this morning with you guys and looking at uh, the Holy Scriptures. So, um, as you know... As you can tell by our song selection this morning, the season is upon us. And as a church, we are embracing it. We have decked the halls. We are ready to celebrate Christmas. And so as a church, what we will be doing for the next couple of weeks is we're just going to keep it simple. We're going to keep it real. We're going to look at three different perspectives that we get in the Bible of the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a perspective from Matthew, from Luke, and from John as well. And so my task this morning is to open up the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of Matthew's story about the birth of Christ and see what we can learn from it. Now, as any time that we talk about this story, there's something, there's a danger that might exist as we look at it, as we consider it. It's, it's, it's interesting that this holiday that we are called as a nation to kind of, we see the nation around us kind of celebrate and remember and decorate this time of year, although the, the, the real meaning may have slipped away. For us as, maybe if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, the danger that can be for, that can exist for us as we look at this story is that it can become a story that we are so familiar with. That as we read it year after year, um, that we lose a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. And so as a church, our hope is that by looking at the scriptures, by looking at these stories, it would awaken in us a new sense, that we would see new things, new truths about how Jesus came to earth and how truly wonderful this is, that it it would awaken new things in our hearts. That's our hope. Now, I'm going to warn you right now, that today's a little different, okay? This message is broken up into two parts, so I'm going to talk for a little bit. I'm going to read some out of chapter one, then I'm going to sit down, and then the band's going to come back up, and they're going to play, maybe wake some of you up, and no, I'm just kidding. I know you guys don't sleep during church, right? You would never do that. Um, and then I'm going to come back up after the song, and I'm going to, I'm going to do another, uh, we're going to read some more scripture, and do a little bit more talking out of Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1, and then I'm going to jump down just for the sake of time to pick up in 18, and I'll read to the end of chapter 1. So Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now the birth, down in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to, to put, being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I just, as we turn our attention this morning to um, the greatest miracle in human history, Lord, I pray um, that we as a people, Lord, regardless of where we stand in relationship to you, 
Lord, I pray a response would be similar across the board, Lord, that we would be in awe of what took place some 2,000 years ago. Father, I pray that you would awaken in our hearts new things, that you would show us new truths. Um, and as a result, Lord, that you would be elevated in our lives to the place that you and only you rightfully deserve. Uh, we love you, Lord, and I pray that your spirit would be here and that you would speak now. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So in this first section in Matthew chapter 1, there are going to be three things. I mean, there's, we don't have a lot of time, and so we're not going to exhaust the text. But there's going to be three things that we're going to point out. I'm going to point out that hopefully, my prayer is that they will do this. They will draw us into wonderment of who Jesus is and the miracle that happened on the first Christmas morning. And the first thing I want to show is that, is that Jesus was the promised one. He was the promised one. Now, um, this just over a month ago, me and my wife, we welcomed into our family our fifth um, child, Noel, Elizabeth, beautiful baby girl. We're super thankful. And, and if, if you've had the, the process of, of, of having, adding to your family or maybe knowing somebody who has, you know that for about nine months, those nine months are filled with, with anticipation, with hope, excitement. And there's always some guardedness there, if anybody has ever lost a child. There's always some guardedness there. Um, I think specifically this, this baby was really special for us. About a year, a little over a year ago, we lost uh, a little girl, Lila Marie. And um, I'm not going to tell the story or the, the details involved with that, but um, it was a very scary, very scary moment. Lost our baby girl, almost lost my wife, and um, completely unexpected um, and incredibly rare when you would just talk to the physicians and they would tell us how, how rare what happened um, was, it, it, just, it was unbelievable, right? And so as you can imagine, these nine months leading up to Noel's birth, they were, there was a seriously guarded anticipation that we felt. There was this weird juxtaposition. We were excited. We were thrilled that, that God was going to bless us with a new baby. But we were guarding ourselves from, from really hoping and really being excited, a lot of those feelings that a lot of times come with the new baby, we were, we were guarding our hearts from being hurt, okay? Because we knew what could happen. The probability was of that happening again was increased, and we knew that there was significant risk involved. And so as you can imagine with this kind of guarded anticipation, as, as we were in the delivery room and, and um, just, just over a month ago, and, and my wife kind of, you know, when I say we had a baby, it was, it was my wife. I did a great job. Of, just to be clear, right, it was my wife that had the baby. I did a really good job of standing there and breathing. I'm very gifted in those two areas. I can do it all day long, all right? I stood and I breathed, okay? And, and my eyes were kind of closed for a while there because just as she gave the last push, you know, I, I can remember the last time I saw, saw a baby come from my wife, how, how, how terribly sad I was and, and what I did not see. I didn't see eyes open. And I did not see, I didn't hear a baby crying. And so, so my eyes were closed and I was just praying and just hoping. And then finally I could hear the baby's voice as she took that first breath and she just screamed out. It's a cry that has gotten old now after a month, I'll confess. <laughs> I remember the first couple of nights laying there and she probably thought, Who is this? what is wrong with this guy? I was sitting there holding her and she was crying. And I was just smiling and laughing at her. Um, there's less of that now. But, but as you can imagine, the point is we were anticipating. We were hoping. We could not wait to see this child. We could not wait to hold her, 
to play with her, to introduce her to her bigger brothers and sister. We couldn't wait. We longed for it. We hoped for it. And what Matthew shows us in this first chapter is that there was an incredible anticipation for this baby years, years ago, for the baby of Jesus to come to this earth. An incredible anticipation. And he reminds us, now think about it, there was longing, awaiting for a Messiah, a king. They were told in the, in the scriptures of old, in the Old Testament, there were promises after promises after promises that a Messiah would come, a rescuer, a deliverer would be coming to God's people to save them, to establish his kingdom, establish his throne on earth. And as generations came and as generations went, many people saw this promise unfulfilled. And I can only imagine that many of the people, as, as Matthew writes these words, that many of, of the Jewish people that were reading these words had probably at this point lost faith. Hundreds of years of silence, of nothing. Perhaps given up hope. It was never going to happen. And as Matthew starts out his account telling the story of Jesus, the greatest man that ever walked the face of this earth, as he starts his account, he reminds them that this is the one you've been waiting for. The wait is over. All the promises in the Old Testament that were pointing to them find their yes in Jesus he goes on into Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Over and over again, we see him quoting scripture, pulling out prophets from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Micah, reminding them that all of this happened to fulfill what was spoken before. The first person that he mentions as he, as he talks in chapter 1 is David. And we know that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, that God established a covenant with David. And he gave him a promise. He said, David, through you, I will establish a throne, a kingdom that will reign forever. Matthew's reminding them that the, the Davidic covenantal promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. The next name that he mentions is Abraham. We know in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that God established likewise a covenant with Abraham. He gave him a promise. He said, Abraham, I promise that through you I will establish a nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed as a result of my promise with you. Through you, the nations of the world will come and worship at this throne. In Jesus the Davidic and Abrahamic covenantal promises find their fulfillment. They find their fulfillment. All of this is recorded to remind us that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised Messiah. He is the one that was hoped for by the people. Matthew goes on in chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, and shows us that Jesus himself understood this and said, as he talked to to the people said, do you not think that I have come? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus understood this about himself. He was the promised one. The next thing that should cause us to be in awe and wonder, Matthew shows us in the scripture of, of what happened on this first Christmas morning was, was the very nature, the person of Christ Matthew's purpose throughout his book is to present Jesus for who he is and to show us what he has done, that the readers may see how wondrous he is, the sovereign king. 
The first thing that we understand about his nature is that Jesus, Matthew makes it very clear, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In verse 18, we learn that Mary is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' name itself means the Lord saves. Emmanuel, the baby should be called Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew is very clear. He understands Jesus to be completely God, fully able to identify with God. He is God himself. And as he goes on throughout his story, Matthew shows that Jesus exercises his authority over creation, over disease, over sin, and even over death itself. Matthew knows for sure that Jesus is God. The next thing we learn as we continue reading through it is that not just is Jesus God, but Jesus is fully man. He came into the earth much like you and me came to this earth. He was born a child. Jesus didn't just pop out of Mary like 275 pounds yoked head to toe like bench pressing 500 pounds. That's not how he popped out, okay? He came and grew like a person. He was a person. Born a child, he didn't have a halo over his head or a perpetual smile across his face. It's interesting that when Matthew starts the story of Jesus, he starts with a genealogy. We don't have time this morning to read all of the names that are listed, but it's interesting. As you were to comb, if you were to comb through those names, what you would find out is that in Jesus's In his family tree, and this would have been kind of like a resume for him in the ancient world, who he came from. We see that in his family tree, you find adultery, you find incest, you find murder, prostitution. Foreigners crept into that family tree. Jesus came to earth, to a broken world, as fully God and fully man. He can relate to us on a level that is just unbelievable that God would do that. We should be in wonder and complete awe at his very nature. The other thing that we learned that should should draw us into wonderment of who Jesus is and what he came to do was, was the very purpose that he came. It's stated very clearly here. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, before there was ministry, before there was teaching, discipleship, or fame, here his purpose is stated. The very reason he came to earth. In chapter 1, verse 21, he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus was on a rescue mission. He came to save the lost. He came to a world stained with sin. He endured the penalty of sin to save you and me from sin. You know, it's interesting. I don't know, around Christmas time, I always think I'm a big fan of gifts. Big fan of gifts. I don't know if you can relate to that. And I love to get gifts. And a lot of times at Christmas time, I remember just the different kinds of gifts that I've gotten over the years. Now, as a child growing up, uh, my family, we would have, you know, we do Christmas at my mom's house, Christmas at my dad's family, and, and both of my mom and dad kind of come from this Irish Catholic background, and so huge families, lots of cousins, and, and when we were really younger, before we started to multiply so well, it was something that we were really good at, um, we would do a, just a drawing at Christmas time. Different uncles and aunts would draw names, and their job would be to buy gifts for the nieces and nephews. And everybody on my dad's side of the family just hoped and waited and longed and prayed that Uncle Jess would draw their name. See, Uncle Jess had the ability to just buy awesome gifts. He, just, he wasn't in town a lot, so he didn't have a lot of time to spend with people. And so this was his way of kind of caring and loving his family. He would buy great gifts. And so I think it was in fourth grade, and, and Uncle Jess drew my name. And it was like, yes, Uncle Jess, thank you. God is faithful. Uncle Jess drew my name. Praise Jesus, right? 
And so I was around fourth, fifth, sixth grade, somewhere in there. And around that time in my life, hockey was a big thing. I'm from Dubuque, and hockey's a little bit of a bigger culture up there. And so hockey was a big deal. And I got into hockey. We were poor, and so my hockey stick was like a couple of two-by-fours that were nailed together. And we'd be out there slapping the puck around. And, and you know, hockey's an expensive sport. And so the equipment, you know, every year as you grow, you got to get more equipment. The breezer's expensive, but the helmet's expensive. you got to keep getting all the stuff. It's expensive. And so, you know, my wish list, like the top of my wish list was these hockey gloves. I wanted hockey gloves. And, and sure enough, we get to Christmas at my grandma's house and start opening up the presents, and there comes my present. I'm just so excited. I open it up, and sure enough, Uncle Jess did not disappoint. My hockey gloves were there, and I put those bad boys on. And I'm telling you, for like two weeks, I didn't take those gloves off. People were looking at me like I was crazy. It was the, one of the greatest gifts. Like, it was the perfect gift. Uncle Jess knew exactly what I wanted. See, the thing about God and what he gives to us on Christmas morning is as great of a gift giver as Uncle Jess was, God is a far greater gift giver. He doesn't just give his people what they want. He gives us exactly what we need. He gives us exactly what we need. If we go through the life of Jesus, we see that he came and, yeah, he healed the sick. He did some amazing things. He came and he, he fed the hungry. He came and bind the brokenhearted. He delivered the demon-possessed. All true, he did all of those things. They're amazing blessings. But ultimately, he was on a rescue mission. He, he came to save you and to save me from our sins the Bible is very clear that the penalty of our sins is, is death, is death. And Jesus, it's interesting that here in this nativity sort of scene, as Jesus enters the world, as he takes on flesh, it all takes place under the shadow of the cross. Folks, he came to die. That's why he came. He came to die. He came to die. And it's interesting in John 1, we learn that, that, that along with this amazing miracle, this joy that he brings at Christmas morning, um, it also comes with pain. John 1, it tells us that he came to his people and his people rejected, rejected him. And so there's lots of ways to respond to Jesus. There's lots of ways to respond to Jesus. And I think that's the question, that, that re- the biggest question that we answer in our life is what do you do with Jesus what do you do with Jesus? Are you going to be like those people who, who pushed him away? Or on Christmas morning, are you going to receive the very gift? doesn't have to be on Christmas morning. I apologize. I guess now would be a great time, too. Are you going to receive the gift that God gives you? A gift that nobody can take away. Those gloves eventually, like, I don't even know where they're at. Right? Greatest gift ever. I don't even know where they're at. Probably deteriorating somewhere in my mom and dad's attic. No idea. Jesus gives us a gift that no one can touch. No one can take away. All right, our story continues. Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 12. If you could turn there, words will be up on the screen. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
for whom you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. When opening their treasures, they offered them gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. So real quickly, we're going to look at what truly is a wonderful response to the birth of Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to learn about this response to Jesus is that it is the revelation, the revelation of Christ in us, to us, is the work of God in us. So if we want to have a revelation of who Jesus is, it's the result of God working in our hearts already. We learn this by taking a closer look at the folks who do not respond in wonder to the birth of Christ. Neither Herod, the secular leader of God's people, or the the scribes and the chief priests, the religious leaders of God's people, nor Israel themselves respond in wonder and in worship. None of these people have a proper understanding of the significance of the birth of Jesus. It teaches us that God must first reveal Christ to us. He must do a work in us if we are to seek him and receive him for who he truly is. See, the Magi, these wise men, they are Gentile. They're Persian kings who come from the east. They come seeking. They come asking, where is this new king? They've come to honor. They've come to to worship Jesus. Herod, upon hearing the news of the birth of the king, he makes no preparations to go to Bethlehem. He knows enough to consult the religious leaders about the significance of this baby, where it might be. He asks some of the right questions, but ultimately, he makes no plans to go, no plans to worship. The scribes and the chief priests, the people of Israel, how do they respond? They know where to look. In the Bible, they know where he's supposed to be born. They know where he should be at the moment. These are promises that are familiar with God's people. They're familiar with them, but they don't understand. They're not ready to receive the king. They're not seeking him out. They should be packing their bags with the wise men, journeying to Bethlehem, but no such preparations are made. This is a terrifying reality. There's a terrifying reality in these scriptures. Not just in the scriptures, but also in our hearts oftentimes. It, it, see, it's, it's, it's possible to know a lot about Jesus and still not know Jesus. When I was in college, one of my favorite bands is uh, Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. 
kind of a weird band, jazz fusion, banjo player, just some weird stuff going on, but really good music, okay? And one of the things that made the music so good was the bass player. The bass player who really I was a fan of, his name was Victor Wooten. Arguably to this day, the greatest bass player that's alive right now, I would say probably is, okay? Phenomenal bass player. And I got tickets to the concert, was super excited, probably uh, maybe my junior or senior year in college, and they were playing at the IMU, and so I'm super excited, and I, it's playing that night, and that day I go to my classes, do my routine like I normally would do, and, and in the middle of uh, the day, I make a little stop, which was also unfortunately a part of my routine, at Cookies and More in the old Capitol Mall, all right? Any followers, any believers in the house? Cookies and More, amen. All right, big fan, that's right, give it up. Big fan of the cookie, love the cookie, okay? So I'm sitting there waiting for a cookie, and there's a line, and a couple people ahead of me, and I'm standing there waiting, all of a sudden it's my turn, the person ahead of me turns around, and guess who it is? It's Victor Wooten. That's right, it's Victor Wooten standing right ahead of me. Now, probably nobody else on campus knew who Victor Wooten was. I knew who he was, and he's right, he turns around like, ah, it's Victor Wooten. Now, let me tell you what did not happen when he turned around and we made eye contact for a brief second. Here's what did not happen. Doug! Vic, how you doing? Oh, you're in town. Great to see you. Hey, what do you say after the show? We go and grab a beer or coffee, whatever, you know, and, and you just kick it, you know, and okay, that did not happen. Okay, instead, what happened was Victor Wooten turns around and I see Victor Wooten and just in my head, oh my goodness, it's Victor Wooten. And Victor Wooten keeps, wow, oh my goodness, Victor Wooten. He just keeps walking. Oh my goodness, nothing happens, okay? Because I knew a lot about Victor Wooten but I did not know Victor Wooten. He did not know me. This is an unfortunate reality. See, what it shows us, what we see in the scriptures, is that, I mean, these are God's people. These are scholars of God's law. They know the answer to the question when Herod asks them. They know exactly where the Messiah should be. They know what to look for. They know, this, they know what this means, the long-awaited promised one, and they don't make any attempt to go to see him. Folks, the unfortunate reality is that you can grow up in a Christian family. You can grow up with a Christian, Bible-believing and teaching mom and dad. You can go to Sunday school, VBS, camp, Awana. You can memorize scriptures. You could go to a college that studies the scriptures, a, a Bible college or seminary. You, you could be a ministry leader. You could be active, involved in church all over the place and know a lot about Jesus and still not know Jesus. It's, it's a reality. It's a truth. We see it on display here. It's a terrifying reality at that. You can know a lot about Jesus and still not know him. And I think at this time of year where, where there's a story that's being told that we are very familiar with, we can risk giving up the fight against that familiarity as opposed to just being in awe and in wonder of what is actually happening, the miracle that is before us. The next thing that we see is that about this response is that this is a response that should be of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the Savior for the whole world, every nation, every people group. It's interesting that Matthew does not tell us anything about the shepherds. By the time the Magi show up, the shepherds have come and gone, right? Jesus is, is close to maybe two years old, people think, at this time. Um, in fact, we know very little about these wise men. We don't know how many there are. Many think that there are three, so I hate to ruin your Christmas carol, but we don't know that there's three. 
All right, we know that they gave three gifts, and from that we deduce that there's probably three, but there could be two men giving three gifts, there could be 30 men giving three gifts. We simply don't know how many there are. We don't know names, we don't know how they dressed, how far they traveled, what they looked like. There is plenty we do not know. But Matthew makes sure that we know that these men are not Jewish. These men are foreigners from a distant land. It's interesting, in Matthew's account, and his story in his gospel, he emphasizes this, that this Jesus is for all nations and all peoples at the beginning of his narrative, and he does it at the very end with the Great Commission. That this Jesus came to save not just, he's not just king of the Jews, he's king of the world. And all peoples will rally. People from all nations, all tongues, all tribes will rally around his throne and ascribe him glory and honor and worship when it's all said and done. And oftentimes, especially during this year where, where commercial kind of creeps in and takes over our Christmas, we can think that this religion, that this Jesus is a, a Western, Anglo-centric Jesus. And that's not what the Bible teaches God has used our nation, maybe raised it up for a time, and there may be a time when he, he no longer has use for our nation. We are not at the center of the Christmas story. We're not at the center of Christianity. Jesus is at the center of it. This is a fulfillment to what was prophesied in Isaiah 60, verse 3. All nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. These kings from the east, they saw the rising of the star, and they faithfully followed it. They followed it. He's not just king of the Jews, but he's king of all. And the last thing we see is that there's really only one proper way to respond to the birth of Jesus, and that's in worship. The wise men do exactly what they set out to do. They found him, and in doing so, they worshipped him. Now, imagine that, walking into a house with a one-and-a-half, two-year-old toddler, um, and they fall on their faces, and they worship this boy. I don't know if you've ever been around a one-and-a-half or a two-year-old. Um, there's many things that you, know, you may want to do sometimes when you're around him, and that's probably the last. But these wise men see him, and they understand who he is. They understand the significance of what is standing before him. The only proper way to respond to the presence of this king is worship. You know, at this time of year, we can often be tempted to seek substitutions for our affection, our delight, our joy, maybe tradition, family, money, peppermint mochas. I don't know what it is. But oftentimes we can substitute things just based around tradition, good things that can creep into our lives and, and be substitutes for the joy that only Jesus is to bring us. Here Matthew reminds us that there is only, there's only one worthy of our worship, of our affections. There's only one who can supply for us likewise a joy that doesn't fade, that doesn't come and go with the seasons. And like the Magi, we are to respond to Jesus with extraordinary, extraordinary, sacrificial praise and worship. So the question we want to ask and just leave with you this morning is, is what place does Jesus have? And we want to be tempted to say, what place does Jesus have in your Christmas? But that's not the question we're asking this morning, okay? Yes, he is central to what we do with Christmas time, what we remember and what we celebrate. But ultimately what it comes down to is what place does Jesus have in your life? 
What place does he have in your life? It's interesting when you look at what brought the Magi to a place of worship. Ultimately, it came down to faith and it came down to obedience. Faith and obedience. We see obedience displayed in the life of Joseph as knowing exactly what the significance of this, this marriage and this baby would have in his life was terrified. But he had faith in the promise of God. And he, he, he responded in obedience to God. The wise men saw the star. And we don't know exactly how they heard about the star and its significance, but they saw the star. They had faith that God was going to be faithful, that he was going to deliver. And they responded with obedience. Those things came before the worship that they displayed upon encountering Jesus. Faith and obedience. You know, it's hard because I think some, for some of us, Christmas is a difficult time. It's a difficult time. It may be the first time that we celebrate the first Christmas we have without a loved one. It may be time that we remember um, pain or grief or loss. And so for many of us, Christmas is, is a time of joy, but it's also a time of, of sorrow, of pain, and of suffering. And ultimately, what the Christmas story is, is a story of a God who came to us in our stepped in to our brokenness, took on flesh. He's a God who knows the hurts of our hearts, and he gives us exactly what we need. So the question is, what place what does Jesus have in Christmas? We know where he should be in Christmas, but what place does Jesus have in your life? Let me pray. Father God, thank you. Um, just for the miracle, the birth of your son. So we thank you that, um, that you saw us um, in our pain, in our brokenness, in our sin. Um, the greatest miracle of all time of our history, Lord, is that you, the one true God, stepped into that to rescue us from it. Lord, we praise you for that. We pray that you would, um, the only proper way to respond to you, Lord, faith and obedience is worship, and, and ultimately that's a work that you have to do in us, Lord. And so we pray right now that, that you would call men and women, that you would prick their hearts, Father, draw them to yourself. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.